Turn to John chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 31 through 42. John 19, 31 to 42. And this morning we've got a difficult topic. It is on secrecy in following God. And uh, in some ways it's really easy and straightforward, but actually... uh, as is so often the case, what we want to be very simple and straightforward actually requires us to have a lot of discernment, a lot of judgment calls. Um, we have to do a lot of work in understanding. And what we see this morning is we see two men who have uh, become secret followers of Jesus Christ. And we see them repenting of that secrecy and becoming public followers of Jesus Christ at the most unexpected of moments when things are at their worst. And so we will see for ourselves what we can learn about uh, when to be silent, when to open our mouths, when to... Uh, hide and when to open up uh, and it's it's a complex complex topic and it requires us to enter into it by faith so please stand for the reading of God's word from John 19 31 through 42 Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, first of all, before we get into the topic more directly of secrecy, let's just review this passage. We come to it where Jesus is already on the cross. He has just died. And then the Jews are trying to uh, keep the law. And of course, the irony that we've seen over and over again as we've come up to this passage is the Jews attempting to keep the law while they are doing absolutely the worst things possible under the law. They are breaking the law. They are lawbreakers. They are, they are completely disregarding, throwing God's law entirely out the window, and then making a big show out of, well, now let's make sure that these guys are dead and buried before the Sabbath day comes. Right? So John is recording all of this, and he, he makes a habit throughout his book, and especially here in this chapter, of pointing out over and over again the Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled as the death of Jesus approaches and as his burial comes. But he doesn't, he doesn't do all of them, Right? <laughs> He doesn't point out, for example, the Old Testament passage that talks about Jesus being, or the Messiah being among the wealthy, the rich, in his death, right? Another Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled that we see here because Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are both wealthy men and they bring substantial money to this project that they undertake in our passage. You talk about buying uh, the burial spices, 100 pounds. Well, you know how much a little jar of spice costs at the grocery store, right? And that's not anywhere near one pound. You imagine multiplying any spice, the cheapest of spices, up to 100 pounds and the cost of that, right? And we're not just talking any spices. We're talking spices... 2,000 years ago, in the Mideast, where spices were that much more valuable. So these are wealthy men, and, and this is yet another fulfillment of the prophecies that the Old Testament pointed out, that the Messiah was going to come, and this is what he was going to be like. This is what he was going to do. This is what was going to happen to him. This is what his death was going to be like. This was how he was going to... Uh, this was how the, the way was going to be prepared before him, right? So here comes John. He's recording it. And what does he say? He says, verse 35, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. And so again, this theme of belief over and over and over in the book of John. We cannot escape it. He is writing this so that we may believe. Everything that he's chosen to record is towards that end. It's for that goal, so that we would believe. 
And so you, you get to this chapter, and the theme of belief has been reiterated over and over and over again. You've seen the theme of the Jews going back and forth in their question of whether or not this is the Messiah, whether or not Jesus is the one. You see them ultimately here uh, earlier rejecting him, crucifying him, using the using the Roman oppressors that were the thing that they most desired the Messiah to do away with, right? They wanted the Messiah to come and establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Romans. And instead, Jesus comes and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And they say, well, then we don't want you. And what do they do? They turn to that very Roman oppressor and use that Roman oppressor to put to death the Lord of glory, their own, their own Messiah, the promised one. The irony there is astounding. And yet then John brings it all back around to much earlier in the book because remember John 3, that's when Nicodemus first shows up and he comes to Jesus secretly at night, right? And now here he is again, a Jew, a leader of the Jews. And yet, he's been, well, what would we say about Nicodemus? Unsure at best, maybe a true true follower of Jesus, a a believer that he uh, maybe... Maybe he's developed and grown since chapter 3. But we don't have any record of what's happened with Nicodemus until all of a sudden you get here. And it says that after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the two that come and request his body and do honor to his body with all of the burial uh, expenses, they pay them. They cover the cost of a tomb. And if you think getting buried here is expensive, try hand carving uh, caves in rocks to bury people in. That's going to cost a pretty penny, huh? And so here these men are, these, these two unlikely characters return Nicodemus returns and Joseph of Arimathea shows up and they are the ones to honor the Lord of glory. They are the ones to take his body and to bury it. Nicodemus has at best been a secret follower of Jesus Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, that is what he's described as, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. Why? For fear of the Jews. Now, I've said that this is a complicated topic, and it is. It's, it's, it's complicated for us, but really, it's not that hard to understand. It's, it's really pretty simple. It's just that it's hard. We are not to be secret in following Jesus 
out of fear of man. We're not, we're not to be hiding the fact that we are Christians. If you're a Christian, you should be delighted to let people know about that. You should be, you should be joyful when you get the opportunity to tell other people that. And in the United States today, um, that is, why wouldn't you? What kind of persecution do we undergo today when we, when we are honest and straightforward in saying that we believe the words of Jesus Christ? Very little, and that's a gift. That's, that's a pleasant and sweet gift that there's very little persecution in America today, right? But it doesn't stop us from asking the question, are you sure that I should always admit it? Are you sure that I should always say it? After all, aren't there times where discretion is the better part of valor? Aren't there times when it might be better to simply uh, remain silent and let people think what they want to think? And of course, the answer is sure. There may be. But what do we need to... What do we need to learn first? What we need to learn first is not to be afraid of man. Until you are not afraid of man, you cannot accurately and wisely and by faith make a decision about whether or not you should speak up, whether or not you should take a stand, whether or not you should uh, declare yourself. You know how uh, you walk into a room and you're not sure there's, some, there's two people having a conversation and you're not sure they've noticed that you've come in and they may be having a private conversation. You've you got you to declare yourself, right? <clears throat> you can clear your throat, let people know you're present. You guys ever done that? Or maybe you just hide like, ooh, maybe I can listen, listen to what they're saying. But no, we, we're, to, we're to declare ourselves, right? Say hi, clear your throat, let people know that you're present when you're present. It's the same with, it's the same with our faith, right? That there are times when we're to clear our throat, if you will, in declaration that we are Christians. But how do you know when you're supposed to do that? I, I knew... Of uh, I knew of somebody who had become so convinced of the necessity of evangelism that this person could not go out without feeling this this incredible burden that they needed to share the gospel with with every person that they interacted with. At literally every single person, you're going through the, you know, and so what does that lead to? It leads to avoiding going out, right? It leads to 
going through self-checkout rather than going through where, where there's a cashier so that you don't have to say something to them and try to, try to witness to them. It, it leads you to avoiding people when you have this, when you have this false burden that somehow literally every single person that you interact with, the interaction has to be a proclamation of the gospel, right? You can understand how that's, that's a, a false guilt or, or you know, a, a false command made, made into false guilt. And it's not helpful, right? And yet, are there times when we are required to, to proclaim the gospel? Absolutely. How do we know? Well, among many other places, one of my favorites to remind us of is always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you, right? Always be ready to give an account for the hope. Well, what is answering that question? Why do you have hope? Because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the only answer to that question. There is no other hope that you can have. There is no other hope that Paul is referring to, certainly. If you remember a few weeks ago, talking about uh, me talking about the, the man who had rejected his faith, rejected Christianity, and he believed in hopeful inclusionism. That was the, he, he still claimed to believe in God, but he believed in this hopeful inclusionism that, that somehow people would get into heaven just because he, God is love, right? This was the, all that remained of his, uh, uh, this was all that remained of the Bible. This was, this was all that remained of the faith that he had been taught and raised in, in his life. And what kind of hope is that? That's no hope. The Bible is very clear that God hates sin, that he pours his wrath and judgment out on sin. Where does hopeful inclusionism fit in that? It doesn't. But if you have Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, then what? Then you have true hope because Christ has borne the wrath of God. And so if you're going to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you, it requires you to know why there's hope. Not just some sort of, well, I hope without any reason or expectation of it being able to be true that God will be nice to me. No, I have hope because of what happens here. Jesus Christ died and was buried and then was raised on the third day. And that was him paying the penalty for our sins. If that is not where your hope is, you do not have hope and you cannot answer the question, why do you have hope? You cannot give an account of the hope for the hope that is within you because you don't have any hope, right? But when you have that hope, you're to always be ready to give an account of it. And so, 
Here you have Nicodemus and, and Joseph. And what have they done? Well, they've finally, finally, finally declared themselves to be disciples of Jesus Christ. They've outed themselves. And why have they outed themselves? It's weird, isn't it? They're, they're, why have they not prior to this? Well, fear. Fear of the Jews, right? Fear of man. And what I've been saying this whole time is that if you're going to, if you're going to have any kind of wisdom on, on when to speak and when to remain silent, when to declare yourself and when to simply go on your way from the grocery store, right? That, that these things, these decisions are going to have to be made by faith and that faith requires us first to no longer fear man. And so fear of man will obliterate any ability that you have to make a wise decision by faith about when to speak and what to say. Because fear of man will override all other concerns and will cause you to simply do what you think will will make it most uh, easy for you. Right? What could the Jews do to Joseph of Arimathea? Well, they could make his life very miserable. If you think about the temptations that come with wealth, all right, and you think about the connected political class and the religious leaders of the day, and you think about how much money and financial opportunity is wrapped up in, the, in being a part of the in crowd, do you know what I'm saying? It's huge, and it's, it's still that way today. All right? So how is it that way today? Well, I, I, let's see, about three years ago, started trying to raise support to come here, right? Fundraising. Well, here we are. We're talking about money, right? And so money... If you're going to get support from other people, it requires you to have connections with them, right? And just think about what the connections are that you have. And if you want more than one church to, to give you money, you have, to, you have to have a good relationship with church leaders, plural, right? It's gotta, you've got to spread this network of people that you know and, and that, that like you and that want to give you money. And so there, there are really, there are really um, pressures with raising support to, uh, to remain silent about certain things so that, the, so that you'll have the broadest appeal possible to people who would be willing to give you money. Do you understand that? You don't want to, uh, you don't want to cut off connections with um, whole groups 
of in crowd all at once. You know, if, if I say something negative about Acts 29 generally, and all of a sudden there's this huge, huge network of churches that are all committed to giving money to church planting, right? And if I say that, I'm cutting off right down at the bottom any possibility of being able to receive money from them. And it's the same with the PCA or any kind of... So, so you guys see the temptations that I would face with regard to money as I'm raising support, right? Now, do you see the temptations that you face with regard to your own money, how connected money is to this question of when you will sp- whether you're going to speak or not. If you're afraid of man, one of the few things that happens here today in the United States is that you, uh, you have the threat hanging over you of losing connections. So forget raising support for a little bit, and think instead of uh, whether you're going to get invited to go on that awesome uh, trip that all the other people in your class are going on. Right? Or think for a moment about whether or not you're going to uh, have people willing to introduce you to other people so that you can sell them uh, your product from your company. And, and that product could be mutual funds or it could be clothes, right? And, any, and anything in between. The moment, that we start, the moment that we start being afraid of man because there's money on the line and let's not make enemies so that we don't lose money. Let's not say anything negative about Okay, now should I fill in some blanks? You know, <laughs> this is this is where the rubber meets the road, right? When we start actually talking about what the what the problems with multi-level marketing are, for example, or when we start talking about what the what the temptations that are that uh, that that those who Uh, are in the financial industry are tempted by, or when you start talking about the temptations that realtors face, or when you start talking about the temptations that uh, the pastors face. All of these are the kinds of things that have the possibility of what? Of, Of there being a financial cost to us. Here, in this room, you, me. And, and here you've got Joseph and Nicodemus, and they've been fearing man, and you, can, and you know how much power there is in having those connections. It's connections that get you jobs. It's connections I, I always tell people this when they're looking for jobs. It is never a bare application that gets you a job. It is always a connection. And, of course, some, one of you will have an, uh, you know, a contrary example, and I'll say, great, it's the first time I've ever found the exception that proves the rule in this case. Right? It's always, always, always connections that get you jobs. Money is at stake in connections, Right? Your college application, what is the thing that matters more than anything else? 
Maybe 10 years ago, you could have said your SAT scores, there was a short window, I think, for that. What is it? Your letters of reference, right? Connections. The people that you know will get you into the places that you want to go. They'll get you the jobs that you want. They'll get you the money and the connections and the resources that you want. This is what is at stake for Joseph and Nicodemus. This is what is at stake for us. When we fear man, there's a reason that we fear man. Even in the United States where you're not afraid, like Nicodemus and Joseph might have been, of having the violence extend to them, their own personal bodies, right? Joseph and Nicodemus are looking up at Jesus, hanging on a cross, dying, and then dead, and facing the question of whether to own his name. And when was the last time anybody died for their faith in the United States? It's not really a danger, right? not saying it hasn't happened, but you get my point. But even setting aside, you know, even setting aside physical danger of persecution to us, there's still this huge weight of temptation, pressure on us to, to fear man because of what man can do to us, or, like I've just gotten done saying, because of what man can keep from us. And that's much more common to be the case today, that it's the things that they will keep or can keep from us that we fear man because of. What is the, you know, the, the, um, the threat of the in crowds, the in cliques at schools, junior high and high school? What is the threat that they hold over people, over these other students? It's of withholding their social approval, right? So that what? So that you feel pressure to do whatever it is that they say. And this is why peer pressure is so common, so powerful, right? Because that, whole, that old, you know, if all of your friends were going and jumping off of a cliff, would you do it? The answer is, well, yeah, I think so. Most of the time, probably, yes. Yes, actually. Why? Well, because nobody wants to be the one that's left out. Nobody wants to be the one that's ostracized. Nobody wants to be the one. And so you can point out the, the, the irrationality or... Uh, to use a simpler word, the idiocy of jumping off of a cliff because your friends are jumping off of a cliff. Like, it doesn't matter that just because everyone else is doing it, doesn't you know, it does not make it a good idea, but that just doesn't matter when you're dealing with fear of man. You're not dealing with fear of cliff, right? You're not dealing with fear of drugs. You're not dealing with fear of uh, sexual immorality and the consequences. You're not dealing with fear of um, the hurt that you'll cause by joining in the making fun of other people, right? You're not dealing with that. You're dealing with the fear of man. And what will they withhold from you? Or what will they do to you? 
if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that may be confusing, but I, but I want you to make that connection, that proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ is you know, declaring yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And often the way that we declare ourselves followers of Jesus Christ is by deciding yes or no what we are and aren't going to do. It's not necessarily words. Joseph and Nicodemus declare themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ here publicly. How? Well, you could say by asking for his body, so it's words. And I say, yeah, but what was it? It was their action, right? It was their action of going, taking his body, preparing it, wrapping it, burying it. This was them publicly declaring. And it's the same thing for us. How can you declare yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, when you're dealing with, you know, you know if, you, if you are in school, the way you do it is by resisting all sorts of peer pressure that are against God's law, right? Any sort of pressure that you feel to, to engage in any kind of sinful behavior, any kind of relational sin with, with groups of other people, okay, where they want you to go along with them into evil, you declare yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you have hope, by saying, no, I won't go along with it. I will not do it. And they say, why? And you can, and, and, and now here's, here's where the, you know, the next tire meets the road, right? <laughs> You're coming in for a crash landing, you get one tire on, and the question is, are you going to bounce up? Are you going to bring that plane in for a landing? And the answer isn't because, well, I don't know what my parents would think about it. The, the answer isn't, well, you know, I just don't think that it's a good idea. I'm not comfortable. The answer is because I am a Christian. Because Jesus Christ said, blessed are the meek. Or any number of a million other things that you could say that would claim the name of Jesus Christ for yourself. That would be a declaration there, right? But you really have to get rid of your fear first before that can even be a possibility. Up until now, Nicodemus and Joseph haven't been able to bring that plane in for a landing. They've done some bouncing, you know. Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus at night. Surely you have to have come from God. For, you know, we, we know, everyone knows you can't do these things unless you've come from God. But he leaves that night without claiming Jesus Christ for himself, doesn't he? If we're driven by fear, we'll never be able to, by faith, decide when to speak and when to remain silent.
If you're driven by fear, then you're only going to come out of the closet as a Christian when it's safe, when it's beneficial, right? Now, are there times where it's safe and beneficial to come out of the closet as a Christian? You better believe it, right? I just got done talking about all those network effects and all of those relationships and the potential benefits of them and so forth. And, and, you know, Christian business networking groups, that's a very safe place to say you're a Christian, right? In fact, there's pretty solid incentive to say you're a Christian even if you're not so that you can make those connections. That's not where we're tested, right? <laughs> at the moments where it's safe, at the moments where it's beneficial, if you won't say that you believe in Jesus Christ then, you never will. But here, Joseph and Nicodemus come when? When all hope is lost by the rest of the disciples, right? The rest of the disciples have, have given into despair. You read the rest of the Gospels, you read Matthew and how they've, they leave the city depressed, thinking, you know, well, we thought we'd found the Messiah. And, and here, in that moment, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. The men who have been too afraid to ever speak up. The men who have been too afraid to ever claim the name of Jesus Christ for themselves. Now, when there is nothing to be gained by it, what do they do? They've given up their fear. They have said, I don't care what the cost is. This Jesus Christ is worthy of honor. And so, we will make sure that he is honored in his death. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Sometimes it takes that kind of clarity of choice before us, doesn't it? You realize what is at stake for yourself, for the rest of your life. You know those, those moments of truth? Here was the moment of truth, the moment that, that their life had been leading up to. Now, would they claim the name of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, against all odds, in spite of all of their fear and their, their lack of willingness to speak, now was the moment. And they speak. They claim the name of Jesus Christ for themselves. They become his followers. We do not we do not have uh, benefits from following Jesus Christ that are this worldly. You, you get what I'm saying? The 
in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So what's he saying? Well, honor from men is the flip side of the same coin of fear of man, right? Honor from men, because we claim the name of Jesus Christ, is what I was talking about at the Christian businessmen's meeting, right? But there's more to it than that. It's, you know, it's how much money you've given to charity in, in through that Christian Businessmen's Association, right? It's how much, there, there's all kinds of ways for us to receive honor, just like there's all kinds of ways for us to be afraid. And what Jesus says in, in Matthew is, you're not getting any honor for your good deeds if you do them before men. That's still just being afraid of man. That's still just living before men and not before God. They have their reward in full. So why, do I, why did I start out by saying that this topic is complicated? Well, the reason is because then, once you understand, okay, it cannot be out of fear of man that I make these decisions, and it cannot be out of seeking honor from man that I make these decisions. Then you're left with, okay, so how do I make these decisions by faith? You guys remember uh, the early church was suffering real persecution, Right? They were being martyred, executed, sent to the lions because of their faith, because of their refusal, because they claimed the name of Jesus Christ above the name of the Roman Empire, the Roman gods, and ultimately the Roman emperor, right? And so... There's a little Christian boy who sees Christians being led away to the arena to be executed. And what does he want to do? He wants to go and join them. And you know what his mom does? She hides his clothes so that he'll be too embarrassed to go out. He wanted to go claim the name of Jesus Christ. Should she have done that? Hmm. I got some nose. I got some, I don't know, some raised eyebrows. The mothers are like, Ugh. 
you see, you know, we're, now, we're, now we're really deep into it because it's not just a question of whether the boy should go out. It's a question of whether the mom, you know, and you've you got all of the pressure of the love of a mother for her children coming into play here too. It takes wisdom, doesn't it? It takes faith to make these kinds of decisions. Are you always required in every circumstance to say, I'm a Christian? Are you always required in every circumstance to declare the gospel? Well, in a sense, yes. The answer to that is yes, right? But are you allowed to run away when they come to arrest you? Yes. Yes, you are. How do we know? Does anybody know? What did you say? Yeah, there you go. Can't ask for a better example than that, right? They came to seize Jesus, and he hid himself from them. Or what did he say to the believers when the persecution was going to come to Jerusalem? He said, get out! Get out before it's too late. And so they did. They obeyed Jesus, and they ran away from persecution. And yet, Stephen did not run away, right? And he didn't just get persecuted, he was martyred. He died for his faith. So now, I said it was complicated, right? I said it was hard. Because it takes it takes prayer. It takes faith, it takes wisdom to know when we're called to suffer. And when it's okay to run away. But why would you run away? See, this is why I spent the the bulk of my time talking about the fear of man, right? Because, as I've said so many times, You cannot begin to answer these questions by faith and with wisdom that comes from above until you do away with the fear of man. Now, all of a sudden, it's not a question of, I'm afraid of what they'll do to me, and so I guess I'd better run away. Or, I'm afraid of what they're going to do to me, and so maybe I just shouldn't run away. Right? Now it's a question of what is right for me in this circumstance. And many times the answer is avoiding the circumstance. And then you you come sometimes to those moments where you can't avoid the circumstance. (laughs) And you know it's time to, to, to be silent 
is to let the name of Jesus Christ be blasphemed. To be silent is to let the name of our God be dragged through the mud. To be silent is wicked. And so, with Joseph, the scaredy cat, we stand up. Right? We stand up. And we let our children stand up. And we're not afraid. We're not afraid of what it will mean for them. Because why? Because along with our own lives, we have entrusted the lives of our children to our Heavenly Father. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, on the darkest night of the New Testament, are models to us of what it looks like to repent of faithlessness, to repent of our fear, to repent of hiding, of being silent when we should speak. And the reason is because they were no longer afraid. They were no longer afraid. And on this moment of all moments, the worst had happened. They had seen the worst. And what did they think? They thought nothing of their money. They thought nothing of their life. They thought nothing of their social standing. They had seen the worst. And all of that stuff became clear in their minds as worthless, less than worthless. They knew what was right. And so they did it. Let's pray that God will do the same through us.